Well, as you probably read in the announcements, um, our head pastor, Peter Hyatt, is uh, probably laying on the beach right now in Florida somewhere, and um, hopefully he's having some great R&R time, and uh, he was down there to do a wedding um, from someone here at our church, but he'll be back uh, this week and back next week on the weekend. And so today, we have a very special guest speaker. This is Andrew Arndt, and he is the pastor of Bloom, which is the church that meets here on Sunday nights. And um, some of you also heard Michael Gunger and his wife Lisa lead worship here oh, a month ago or so, something like that. So they all together do a church, and uh, it's a young crowd that um, meets at, um, I keep forgetting your time. Six o'clock. Six o'clock. So anyway, Andrew is going to share with us uh, this morning, and uh, he and his wife Mandy are from Wisconsin, cheeseheads, and uh, he um, has a bachelor's degree in business management and got his master's of divinity from uh, Trinity, just north of Chicago. After that, he went back to Oklahoma and worked at a church, and guess what the name of the church was? The Sanctuary. So I think he's meant to be here. <laughs> he has three kids and uh, one on the way. Yes. When does he do? Uh, we don't know what it is He, yet. she. Yeah, it. It, it sorry. <laughs> December. Okay, so, so we will have four kids under five years old. So if any of you are we'll in the help. business of making money for babysitting, <laughs> just come and see me after so, the service. Let me pray for Andrew and we'll, we'll hear from him. Father, thank you for this morning. And um, it was great to hear Andrew's mes message last night. And so I pray that um, you would use his words, his stories, his life, his heart, uh, to speak to us this morning, and that it would it would be you, Lord, that we're really hearing, and I pray that you would prick the parts of our hearts that you want to speak to, and um, it's so cool to me so how different people can stand up here, and your spirit uses each person in such a unique way. So, I pray for uh, just a blessing in our time this morning, and we pray for uh, Andrew's message, which is really your message. So, thank you, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Francis. Well, uh, it's an honor to, uh, to be with uh, all of you this morning, a beautiful group of people. Uh, we at Bloom are uh, we're really grateful. You know, we're, a, we're a young church, uh, about two years old, and uh, running about 100 people. And uh, in some ways, we feel like a two-year-old running around in the middle of a busy intersection, uh, you know, getting ready to, you know, we're on the verge of getting schmucked by a car at any moment. And, and you guys, as a congregation, have opened up uh, your building to us. And, uh, and the relationship that we have with you guys is wonderful. And so to that, we would just say thank you. Uh, we love you guys. And it's an honor to be here speaking uh, in Peter's pulpit. Peter is one of the great preachers that I've ever heard. So uh, hopefully, hopefully, I don't disappoint you or let you down too badly this morning. Uh, but uh, we're in the season uh, of Easter. Now, um, not many people know that Easter actually is a uh, season, right? Um, but it is. Easter is a season that lasts six or seven weeks. Uh, leads up to uh, Pentecost Sunday, and then that's followed by Trinity Sunday, and then we go into ordinary time in the Christian calendar, and uh, all of that stuff is very fascinating to a guy like me. It may not be fascinating at all to you, but the fact that Easter is a season, I, I think, is pretty true to life. You know, if we were in um, a very liturgical church setting, as we journey through Lent, it would get darker and darker and darker here in the sanctuary. Uh, we would cover up a lot of the stained glass windows if we had any art on the walls, probably take the art down, and uh, it would just be a way of our saying that as we get closer and closer and closer to the cross, things get very, very dark. And then on Easter Sunday, 
you know, instead of marching in here, and I don't know what kinds of churches you all grew up in, if you grew up in church at all, but uh, a lot of our churches, you know, on Easter Sunday, it's like you walk in at 9 a.m. and they have like 100 people in the choir, you know, and it's, ah, Christ is risen. And, and uh, you know, and that's all, I mean, maybe it wasn't like that in the church that yeah, you belong to. Uh, but, uh, but in some ways, you know, in a, in a more liturgical type church, instead of that whole kind of big production, Easter is this kind of explosion that happens, a person would walk in with just a single candle. They'd light one candle, the Christ candle, as a way of saying that this light has now dawned. I mean, it's not, and it's not here, it hasn't encompassed the whole universe, but it's dawned in our midst. And so we put the art back up on the walls and we take down the, the coverings off of the stained glass through, through the season of Easter, just as a way of saying that this light has, has come into our midst. And that, in some ways, is very kind of true to life in terms of what Easter is. Uh, and, and it's true to life in terms of the way that the Bible talks about the resurrection reality that's dawned in our midst. That even though the scriptures claim that in Christ, in his resurrection, God has enacted his dramatic act of reversal. He's bringing about his kingdom. He's bringing about the reconciliation of all things, the renewal of all things. It's all his grand project of restoration is all underway. Yet, despite the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead as God's great gesture of the kingdom of God, everything in our world is not yet put back in place, is it? We have bodies that are still sick, relationships that are still out of whack, situations that are still embedded with sin and we can't figure out exactly how to go forward. And so resurrection has happened and yet we're, we're waiting for something. And on Easter Sunday, because I'm the kind of pastor that likes to mess with people's heads, uh, I preached out of Mark 16. And if you know Mark's resurrection account, it's, well, it's maybe my favorite one out of all of the gospels. Because Mark starts talking about how early in the morning and these two women, they go to the tomb and they see an angel there and the angel says he's not here. They go in, they look and they see that Jesus indeed is not there. And then Mark ends in verse 8 saying that trembling and bewildered, the women went from the tomb and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. You know, when we look at Mark and we go, come on, Mark. You spent all of this time putting together this incredible book about how Jesus has invaded the world as God's sort of apocalypse in our midst. And, and, and the best that you can come up with is trembling and bewildered. Give me a break. Give us something better. Give us a 900-foot Jesus on a big white horse conquering Rome and ushering in the kingdom. And instead, Mark doesn't want to do that. Because Mark understands something about resurrection that maybe we don't understand. And that, it's that, that is that it's messy. Resurrection is not seven principles, four easy steps, three things that you can do to achieve a better life, put it together in a book, sell it at Mardell's. Like, resurrection isn't that. And it's important for us, I think, as God's people to get it right with regard to what the resurrection reality is. In my experience, I think that you can go wrong with resurrection in one of two directions. On the one hand, and maybe you've been in circles like this, there are some who, thinking about the idea of resurrection, resurrection then means that everything that God has achieved in Jesus is all right here, right now, and there's no kind of future. And so, if you believe then in resurrection, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, you believe in the gospel, then that means something for you, and it means that you know, maybe you'll have six figures in your salary, right? Live in a white picket fence neighborhood with white picket fence neighbors and you'll have a beautiful flock of children that are free from pain and 
disease and they'll go on to, you know, be summa cum laude in college and, and, uh, and you'll just be prosperous and everything will be wonderful and raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens and all that for the rest of your life. And, and therefore there is no future, there's no waiting, there's no tension in that way of thinking about resurrection. And that's an error on one extreme. On the other extreme, there are some who when they think about the reality of resurrection, they, they make it all history and it's all future. So God raised Jesus from the dead. And of course, that's a sliver of the great resurrection to come. But in the in-between, there's like n nothing to be expected of God. Nothing to be hoped for, nothing to be longed for. We only just kind of get by on faithfulness, waiting for the day in which God breaks in and makes all things new. But in the meantime, there's just not a lot going on. And that's an error on the opposite side of the tracks, thinking about resurrection. One makes it all right here, right now. The other makes it all future. And when the Bible thinks about resurrection, talks about the reality of resurrection, it's much more nuanced than that. Let me read a familiar story to you. This is John chapter 11, the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. If you have Bibles, you can look along with me. I'll start in verse 1 reading. The scripture says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, they said, the one you, what's the word? Love. love. The one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. And Jesus, what's the word? Loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then the disciples, then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by the day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It's when he walks by the night that he stumbles, for he has no light. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, look, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, uh, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Jesus is so accommodating to us, isn't he? And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. I mean, way to break the news on these guys. So that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, well, I know, of course, that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. 
I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews, who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and she said, same thing, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was, say it with me, deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, sneering perhaps, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been in there for four days. Then Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. There are a handful of things that I think are important for us to notice in this text, this account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead because I think it speaks powerfully to the way in which God chooses to invade the human experience. In the first place, I think it's important for us to notice the deep, deep humanity of Jesus that John wants us to realize in this text. Remember that in John's incredible book, he opens in chapter one by saying that in the beginning was the, you know it pretty well, I'm sure, the word, and the word was with God, and the word, and he was with God in the beginning. That in Jesus, somehow, we are meeting as much of God as we can possibly hope to meet. He is, as Paul says in Colossians, the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. We believe that in Jesus we meet all of God, but John has more to say about Jesus than that. And it's not just that in him we meet all of God, but that in him we meet what it means to be truly human. And so he says that the word was made flesh. That this Jesus took on human skin and bones and flesh and all of the experience of being human. So much so that in this text, Jesus, far from being some objective, sterile, detached deity that looks on the situation and goes, well, I know what's wrong over here. I'm gonna go ahead and fix this thing. Says that he loved Mary and he loved Martha and he loved Lazarus, and he's described as this one who has a deep sort of empathy for these people, that he feels 
what they feel and the pain that they feel over losing Lazarus and the disappointment over that and all that Lazarus represented as the hope for the future of the family. Jesus feels that deeply. When he comes to where they are and he sees all the people weeping, what does it say? That he was deeply moved. And then when he says, hey, take me over to the tombstone. I want to see this thing. They say, they start leading him on. And what does it say? I mean, we make a joke out of it. I grew up in church. And so, you know, every once in a while in children's church, they would say, okay, now it's time for everybody to quote, you know, a Bible verse. Okay, uh, Johnny, you quote your favorite Bible verse. And uh, Johnny, the smart aleck little kid, you know, would always go, Jesus wept. And it's like the punchline of a joke. But maybe, maybe those two words are the most profound two words in all of Scripture. That this Jesus is capable of being affected by human pain. So much so that it breaks his heart. And he weeps over the pain. This Jesus is not objective. He is not sterile. He is not detached. He is not remote. He's moved by us. I think that's interesting. The second thing that I find interesting about this text is that John has this vested interest in pointing out sort of the spatiality of the narrative. In other words, Jesus starts out and he's quite distant from this place where Lazarus is and Mary is and Martha is. And, and, and they send word to him and they tell him to come. And of course, as the narrative progresses, Jesus moves from, from as far as he can possibly be away from the situation to as close as he can possibly be to the situation to the point where he says to them, look, take away the, take away the tombstone, take away the stone. Like, I, I want to get my face in there. And Martha looks at him and she's like, why would you do that? That, that, that? That's insane. It stinks in there. He's been in that tomb for four days, rotting corpse. It's going to stink. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You take away that stone because I want to smell the stink of this death. Let me plunge my face right into the pungent odor of failure and disappointment and grief and hopelessness. Let me get my face in there. He moves from as far as he can possibly be to as close as he can possibly get. And you know, he doesn't have to do it that way. And many times in the Gospels, he didn't do it that way at all. Somebody come to him and say, you know, Lord, so-and-so is sick and is about to die. And he'd go, oh, well, uh, in that case, do you have faith about this? And they go, yeah, we have some faith. Okay, well, fine, that person's going to be healed. And they go away and he heals them like from a distance. And he could have done it that way. He could have just stayed right in the village that he was doing whatever he was doing, all the important business that apparently Jesus must be about. And he could have just said, oh, Lazarus is sick and now he's on the verge of death. Okay, well, uh, in my name, be healed. Some of you will get that joke later. Be healed, Lazarus. Comes back from the dead right then and there. Instead, there's something about this Jesus that like he can't stay distant from the pain. He has to move up as close as he can possibly get to it. That, I think, is fascinating. The third thing that I think we have to pay attention to is the fact that both times when the sisters come to Jesus, they present Jesus with exactly the same issue. Martha comes to him first and then Mary. Remember what Martha says to him when she meets him. She goes, Lord, if you had been here, my, my brother would not have died. And Mary echoes the same sentiments. And of course, when we read this passage, because we've so, been so flanagraphed out and we've heard this story so many times, we read it in this kind of poetic sort of way, you know. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But 
you read the text and you think about it, and you have to imagine that there was some measure of indignance in their voice. Some measure of, do you want to explain to us why when we sent word to you and told you to come, that you didn't come, Jesus? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. We're, and like, you're constantly healing people. This is what you do. When people are blind, you make them see. When they're deaf, you make them hear. When their tongues can't speak, you lose their tongue. When people are dead, you bring them back to life. And, and you do this for the crowds that don't even know you, and we spend time with you. We are your close friends. And when Lazarus, whom you love, got sick, we told you to come and be a part of this thing so that Lazarus wouldn't die. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Both sisters present him with that issue. And interestingly enough, Jesus refuses to address their issue on the level that they want it addressed. He doesn't sit down and go, uh, Martha, uh, you're noticeably upset, and I really uh, can't appreciate that. Um, but uh, let me please for a minute um, give you a quick lesson on the sovereignty of God the uh, inscrutable wisdom of the Most High who from the foundations of the earth has decreed X, Y, and he, he doesn't do that. He doesn't get in a theological debate with them. Doesn't start talking to them about sovereignty. Doesn't get into a shouting match. No, <laughs> you know, none of that. Instead he says, well, your brother Lazarus, he, he will rise again. And Martha says, well, some hope that is, of course, he's going to rise again at the resurrection at the last day. And he says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. That great hope that you have at the end of all things when God breaks in and make all things new, the resurrection, the great reconciliation of all things, the great renewal of all, th all that you hope for, all that you long for in that, it, it's not future. You're staring at resurrection right now. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me lives even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. It's Jesus' way of saying that all that you hope for in the future is present right now. It's taken on human flesh. I am the resurrection and the life. And when Jesus finally brings Lazarus back from the dead, it says he comes to the tombstone and he shouts in a loud voice and the dead man comes out and interestingly you know when Paul talks about the moment at the end of history when Christ returns the second coming remember that it says that he'll come down out of heaven with a a loud shout right and the dead in Christ will rise we'll meet him up in the air and then we'll welcome our king back home it's got the same kind of linguistic shape here as that and it's John's way of saying that wherever Jesus is Slivers of that great eschatological resurrection are broken off, get planted in the middle of human history, and get tasted by us who are beset with death and disease and decay and hopelessness. That God plants his resurrection right in the middle of our history of hopelessness. Jesus is living hope in our midst. I am the resurrection, and the life. When uh, my wife and I were living back in Tulsa um, these last three years, uh, we had our, uh, our oldest son, Ethan, is going to be four this summer. So when we first moved to Tulsa, uh, all we had was Ethan. So Ethan is just a couple months old. 
And uh, so like uh, young parents do when they come to a new church, they seek out other young parents or people that are about to become young parents as a way of just finding comrades, you know, to people to sort of journey through life with. And so uh, we fell in this group of people, this group of young couples that were either having kids or on the verge of having kids. And uh, those of you that are parents, you know the euphoria of finding out that you're pregnant for the first time, that you're getting ready to have a baby. And so this community was actually, we got together once a month at different people's houses and had big dinner parties. We were like this traveling circus dinner party thing. And, uh, and so like it seemed like every time we got together, a new couple would say, guess what? We're having a baby. And one of the couples that was a part of that group, a couple by the name of Joel and Candace Haas, when everybody else was getting pregnant, finding out that they were getting ready to have a baby, Joel and Candace became pregnant too. And all of the joy and the wonder and the euphoria of that, and as a community, we're going, yeah, you're having a baby, this is so amazing. And eight weeks into the pregnancy, Candace loses the baby. So as a community, we rally around them, mourn for them and with them, and just pray that, praying that somehow God would make something good out of the situation. And not long after that, Candace gets pregnant again. And so as a community, obviously, we are just incredibly excited about this. Candace goes to the doctor, do the first checkup. And uh, when the doctor does the ultrasound on her, it's not one baby in her womb, but it's two. And so it's like that sense that you get that like, not only is God restoring what was lost, but in a funny way, he's kind of adding to it. And so again, as a community, we're just we are elated about this. Yes, resurrection, hope, life, this is good. Yes, God, thank you. And not long into that pregnancy, she lost both of the babies. And Candace, it turned out, was working at a dental office, and uh, there was a nitrous oxide leak there that violated OSHA standards or whatever. And so um, they went through the process. And if you know anything about that, nitrous oxide is like deadly for pregnancies. And so um, they went through the whole process of getting justice on that, and the doctors got her on this very rigid kind of regimen of different medicines that flushed her system clean so that she'd kind of have a reset button on getting pregnant. And uh, so after all of that takes place and her system is flushed, Candace gets pregnant again. And this time it's like we got like the physical thing taken care of and there's justice and we've lost one, we lost two, but we're not losing the fourth one. So she gets pregnant and the pregnancy is going very well, 16 weeks, 17 weeks, 18 weeks, 19 weeks. And Candace at this point, I mean, at about 20 weeks, you know, you can feel that. I mean, it's, it's an entity in your midst, right? And uh, Candace, like, uh, like many uh, expectant mothers, she had this habit of after she'd get done with work at the end of the day, she'd come home and she'd sit down on the bed and she'd sing as a, to her tummy you know, as a way of bonding with the baby. And so she'd sit on the bed and sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, you know for the Bible tells me so. And, and uh, she'd watch as her belly would kick and just kind of jump. And there's all the excitement of that. And one day we're going to meet this baby. And one day she got home from work. She lay down on the bed. She started singing to her belly. And this time there's no kicking. There's no movement, nothing. Go to the hospital, check out what's going on. There's no heartbeat. And at 20 weeks, you know, you, you, you've got to deliver that baby. And so she goes through the process of getting the baby delivered, putting together arrangements for a funeral. And um, so the night before the funeral, because we were close friends with them, I took one of the guys who was a part of that group that we were a part of, Bill, and we went over just to be with them the night before the funeral. And uh, Joel's mom was in town, and so we sat around for a couple hours and just talked with them and grieved with them and, and listened to them pour out their hearts and share their stories and the frustrations. And it was just, it was unreal to sit there and listen to Candace go, yeah, every night. I'd sing to the belly, and the belly would, would kick, and then one night he just, he stopped kicking, and 
and you're sitting there and you're going, man, how can stuff like this happen? What, what, what in the world is wrong with our world that this kind of thing can happen? So we spent a couple hours with them. And uh, before we got ready to leave, Bill goes, hey, why don't we all just kind of gather up and pray? And so we're standing there in, in a circle with our arms around each other. And as we're praying, like I'm sitting there and I'm just kind of thinking about what had happened to this family and how, you know, sometimes when you have like one bad thing happen to you, it's like, man, that sucks. <laughs> and you have another bad thing happen to you and you're like, man, that sucks too. And then like three and, and four things start happening. And all of a sudden it feels like a conspiracy. You know, it feels like somebody's kind of got it out for you. And that's the way it felt as I'm sitting here thinking about this family. I'm thinking like, this isn't normal. This isn't natural. This is, this is an invasion. This is, this, is, this is a conspiracy of some kind against this family. And so as we're sitting there praying and I'm thinking about her womb and just the death that had taken root in her womb, womb, I remember getting filled with this and maybe you've experienced this before, this anger that was like this righteous kind of anger, like a protesting kind of anger, like, no. This shouldn't happen. This should never happen to people. And I remember in the middle of that, reaching across the circle and just touching her belly and saying, Lord, in this place where there has only been death, where there has only been frustration, where there has only been dashed dreams and dashed expectations, in this place, God, where there has just been scorched earth, we are claiming the power of your resurrection over this womb, and we're calling forth life out of this womb. God, bring your life out of this darkness. Bring light into this situation. God, we're asking for that in Jesus' name. And about six months later, Candace gets pregnant again. And this time, the, the, the pregnancy goes full term delivers a beautiful, healthy baby girl, Lily Rose, and they are rejoicing at what God did. Now that is a resurrection moment. That is, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives, that somehow life has come into the world in Jesus. And the New Testament claims this all over the place. When Jesus appeared among us in the first century, remember that he didn't just appear among us as a moral teacher, teaching us about how to live and be nice people and grow up to be fine citizens and all of this. He didn't do that. He came healing people and driving out demons and, 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 and healing people that were sick and, and, and opening up, that's what, that's what he did. And it was his way of saying that I, I am the presence of the kingdom of God in your midst. Wherever I am, things come back to life. Of course, sometimes when God comes and enacts his great resurrections in our lives, sometimes it's not so much that he stops bad things that would have happened, you know, or like that. Sometimes what he does is he brings something that's so great and so beautiful and so over the top in its newness that it just swallows up what came before it. I remember being in high school. And um, I was one of the youth leaders in our high school, led this small group, and a couple of the guys in our small group were this, these brothers, Dylan and Cole Glebke. And uh, Dylan and Cole were like, Dylan and Cole were like those, those kids in the youth group that like loved Jesus a lot, but they just, they behaved in inexplicable ways all the time, you know? And so you just like couldn't fit these guys into a box, you know? And Dylan and Cole just 
over the top and you'd hear these stories of them doing something monumentally stupid and then out of the same breath you'd hear a story of them bringing somebody to youth group and that person you know coming to Jesus and that was Dylan and Cole and so uh, one uh, year this was my senior year of high school prom had rolled around and Dylan and Cole were out late one night on prom night and uh, they're driving down the highway with their friends one of those backcountry roads up in Wisconsin a drunk driver comes out of nowhere and bam slams into them. Both cars burst instantly into flames. And uh, so they make the funeral arrangements and the whole church hears about it. And all the people who were friends of Dylan and Cole and have been influenced by their lives hear about the funeral. And, and uh, remember, I've grown up in church. So like I, I've been to a lot of funerals before. Okay. And I've never been to a funeral like this in all of my life. I mean, our sanctuary, I think, seated like 750, 800 people, maybe something like that. And that place was filled to capacity with people. And half of them were people from the local high school. And I sat there as a sort of spectator in this event, looking at this funeral that's happening. And the balcony is packed with people. And, and the ground level is packed with people. And the caskets are up front. And, and they play this David Crowder song. And it's super emotional. And there's a message preached. And I'm sitting there. And I'm watching all of this. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, there's nothing that will undo the pain of losing Dylan and Cole. No, nothing to reverse that. And the reality is that some pain just doesn't go away. And some pain just is never in some ways undone. Remember that in eternity, when Christ reigns, he will reign as the slain lamb. There are some scars that just we remember forever. And that's just the way that it is. And I remember sitting there thinking, resurrection, whatever it means, doesn't necessarily do away with this. But maybe, just maybe, God is capable of bringing something beautiful out of this. I'm looking at all of those high school students there. And the funeral's over, and they're sitting there. Most of these kids are buck pagans, you know? And they're sitting there, and they're listening to the deep meaning behind Dylan and Cole's life. That, that in Dylan and Cole, they were actually encountering people that loved God and believed in, this, in just this story about how God raised Jesus from the dead and that that means something for us as human beings. And I remember sitting there thinking, Dylan and Cole may have influenced a lot of people in their life and it's a tragedy that we don't get to see what their life would have been. But this is a start at redemption. How many people are sitting here in this auditorium during this funeral for whom the kingdom of heaven is taking root in their lives in a unique way? And how much heaven will come spilling into the world simply because they sat here and God did something amazing where, as the scripture says, with the enemy intended for harm, God did what? He turned it around for good. Whether you're aware of it or not, this is the substance of the story that we believe in as Christians. That somehow... In Jesus, what God has done is he has invaded the citadel of sin and death and hell and brokenness itself and unseated the authority structure there and has begun from the middle of death itself to bring renewal to the entire world. God specializes in redemption. That's what he does. And the question that's before us always is the same question that Jesus lays at the feet of Mary and Martha, and it's this. Do you believe? Because the power of resurrection is always available for those of us that believe. It's just whether or not we have faith to believe that it actually can come spilling into our lives. And I wonder for you sitting out here, how many of you just feel like there are some situations in your life or some places in your soul that are just dark 
beyond dark, disfigured beyond disfigurement and can never be fixed. And I'm just here to tell you that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that means something for you. As a longtime church member, I've sat in the middle of situations of moral failure that were as disgusting as you would ever want to see. And I've watched God make things new out of that. And I'm just telling you that in 30 years of walking with Jesus, there is nothing that is outside the scope of his power. The question is, do you believe? Because if you do, all things are possible to those that believe. Lord, we, uh, we turn our hearts to you as a people uh, that live in the country of sin and death. And Father, all around us there is, uh, there is disfigurement, there is hopelessness, there is despair. There are situations that seem to be beyond the pale, circumstances that seem like they could never be fixed. And yet, in the middle of all of that, there is the bright light of resurrection shining upon us. And Father, I am asking you this morning that in every place in which we feel as though there's just too much death and it can't be undone, every place in which we feel like there's too much despair and it can't be overcome, too much hopelessness and it can't be fixed, I'm asking, Father, that you would give us the faith to believe that in Jesus we really do meet the resurrection and the life and that you are capable of making all things new as you promised to do. So the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, after he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take this and eat it. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. And I tell you the truth, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine again until the day when I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of my Father. I want to invite you to come forward to communion in just a moment here, remembering that when we celebrate communion as God's people, that we're both celebrating that God has conquered sin and death in the present, and yet we're also celebrating that the t there is a day coming in which we will eat this meal with Jesus, and the kingdom of God comes in full. And so as you eat and drink from the cup uh, this morning, I just want to encourage you uh, to know and to believe that one day every trace of darkness will be wiped from our world. He will make all things new. The darker cups are wine, lighter cups are grape juice. Eat and drink as you will. So people of God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the bright light of resurrection shine upon you and may you experience hope and life in every dry and barren and broken place in your life. Grace and peace be with you.